It's a disorder that causes loss of pigment in tissues. Particularly the skin, the eyes, and the hair. Generally speaking, they're going to have very light skin, light eyes, and then the hair tends to be very light, such as blonde to almost platinum white. And can significantly impact the visual system. When I say the visual system, I'm referring not just to the eyes, but also to the neural connections between the eyes and the brain, as well as some of the main areas of your brain that help you process visual information. And hear from a mother whose son's diagnosis led to the discovery it's been in her family for generations. I, in the meantime, tracked down every branch in our family tree to the level of the third cousins to try to figure out, did anybody else have this? Gain a better understanding of people with albinism inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter's Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Albinism is a disease that causes a person to lack pigment or color in their skin, hair, and eyes, often leading to increased risks to that person's vision, exposure to sunlight, and, unfortunately, social issues due to stigmatization. Today, we'll learn about albinism and how it impacts those who have it. To first understand how it affects skin and hair, we reached out to Dr. Stephen Humphrey, Assistant Professor, Department of Dermatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin and a Pediatric Dermatologist at Children's Wisconsin. Looking at it from a dermatological perspective, Dr. Humphrey gives a brief explanation of what albinism is. Albinism is a group of inherited disorders that cause a reduction or a complete lack of pigment in our tissues, particularly the skin, the eyes, and the hair. Based on this lack of pigment, what are the distinguishing physical characteristics of a person with albinism? It does kind of depend on which type of albinism that a patient has, but generally speaking, they're going to have very light skin, like white or even pink, and can be very strikingly white, particularly compared to family members who might be darker skin color. They can also have light eyes. Those might look blue or gray or even pink. And then the hair tends to also be very light, such as blonde to even orange to almost like platinum white. The lack of pigment is due to a deficiency of melanin in a person's body. But what is melanin? Melanin is actually a really cool aggregate of smaller molecules derived from one of the amino acids that we ingest every day called tyrosine. But its main function is to protect tissues from ultraviolet radiation. Where in our bodies is melanin found? Melanin is made in special cells called melanocytes and is found mostly in the skin, but it's also found in our eyes, our hair, the inner ear, 
and also in parts of the brain, particularly in the brain stem. How does melanin protect our body? Its main role is to absorb UV radiation and UV energy. Melanin is a really effective and efficient absorbent of light, and it's able to dissipate ultraviolet radiation really efficiently. So because of this, it's able to protect our skin cells from ultraviolet radiation damage. Why that's important is UV damage can actually alter the DNA within our skin cells, thereby putting our skin at higher risk for cancers down the road. Dr. Humphrey explains there are two main types of melanin, eumelanin and pheomelanin. Eumelanin tends to be darker brown or black, while pheomelanin tends to be more of a red or yellow color. No one has all eumelanin or pheomelanin. There's sort of a mix for people. For example, someone who has red hair probably has more pheomelanin, but someone who's got darker hair probably has more eumelanin, and that allows for the wide range of color that we see in skin and hair and eyes. There's also two main types of albinism, oculocutaneous albinism and ocular albinism. Oculocutaneous involves both the eye and the skin, while ocular albinism really just involves the eyes. From my standpoint as a dermatologist, I'm usually only seeing patients who have oculocutaneous albinism. We'll learn more about these two types later. Ahead of that, we asked Dr. Humphrey, what causes albinism? Albinism is what we call an autosomal recessive disorder. So that means there's a genetic change of a gene that leads to its development. DNA gets bundled into genes. And when there's a change in that gene, that leads to change in how a protein gets made. And it's that change that can lead to the development of many diseases, including albinism. Do both parents need to have the genetic mutation to pass albinism on to their child? Typically, that's the case. Both parents would have to have one copy of the variant gene to cause the condition, and then that child would have to inherit both of them. If both parents do have the genetic mutation, what are the chances their child will inherit it? When it comes to autosomal recessive disorders like albinism, there's a 25% chance of a child having it if both parents have a defective copy of the albinism gene. So then, is it considered a particularly rare disease? It's pretty uncommon. Generally speaking, the range of affected is somewhere between 1 in 8,000 people to about 1 in 40,000 people. So if you grew up in Racine, Wisconsin, roughly 80,000 people, probably two people would have it. But there are parts of the world where the rate is disproportionately higher. We know that parts of southern Africa, Tanzania, Botswana, also northern Ireland as well, the gene copies are more common, so it's more likely that someone from those parts of the world might have it. Next, Dr. Humphrey tells us that, from a dermatological perspective, albinism can affect a patient pretty drastically. If you are unable to make as much melanin or no melanin, you cannot protect yourself from ultraviolet light and UV radiation. And it's UV light that causes sun damage to collagen, which makes up the bulk of our skin. And because such sun exposure can cause mutations in DNA... Over time, cumulative sun damage can increase that DNA damage. And with enough of it, you can set yourself up to develop a few different kinds of skin cancers. How do doctors treat and protect the skin of patients with albinism? He says, as a pediatric dermatologist... I'm not usually seeing a lot of cancer diagnoses because most people who are going to develop skin cancer, it's that cumulative effect over a lifetime. Which means, for him, it's teaching children with albinism to be vigilant about sun protection. Young 
patients doing a good job of protecting themselves from the sun with protective clothing, hat, avoiding midday sun, sunscreen, all those pieces of a good sun protection program. You know, it's important for everyone. It's even more important for our patients with albinism. As they age, patients must become vigilant in additional ways because... Since we can't yet fix ability to make more melanin, we have to protect it since it can't protect itself very well. So that's doing good screenings for these patients, evaluating all their moles really closely, because when you have albinism, even your moles can't get pigmented, so you have to have a sharp eye to catch changes and then really making sure that the patients are educated and empowered to take care of their skin. Are patients with albinism, especially children, more frequently monitored to avoid risks associated with the disease? I would say in general, in kids, I'm not so worried about getting a skin cancer, but I usually recommend seeing kids at least once a year, but it also depends. Patients with albinism can have eczema, they can have acne, they can have normal things that we get as kids. So, you know, I might be seeing them a little bit more frequently. In addition to physical challenges, there are significant social challenges, particularly stigmatization. Certainly there can be stigmatism. You know, if someone looks different than us, there's always that potentially being bullied or teased or excluded for being different. And I think it's really important to educate others so they know what this is. Something as visible as the skin can't really hide that, and we do worry about social isolation. Such stigmatization can come in many forms. Physically, socially, it can be both. There is a lot of discrimination based on skin color differences, and certainly that can affect the ability of someone to lead a full life. People can be marginalized. They may have some economic vulnerability because they look different. And in some parts of the world, this stigmatization can be dangerous, even deadly. In parts of Africa, there was actually in the mid-2000s attacks on people with albinism, including killing them just to use parts of their bodies for like amulets due to false claims that the wearer of someone's part of their body has albinism would bring them good luck or wealth. So the depth of stigmatization, I mean, we as people can be pretty cruel. Which is why Dr. Humphrey is calling on each of us to open our mind and be kind. People with albinism are people. Just because their skin is different, looks different, they're still people. I'm going to quote one of my favorite TV shows, Ted Lasso. Be curious, but not judgmental. We can be allies and advocates for people who have this condition. We can educate our teachers, our coaches, our family members so that we can support people with albinism. Next, Let's discover how albinism affects a person's eyes and vision. For this, we turn to Dr. Erica Wirtz, a research scientist at the Medical College of Wisconsin's Eye Institute and a member of the Eye Institute's Advanced Ocular Imaging Program. Dr. Wirtz begins by telling us, while the pigment melanin is important in determining our skin, hair, and eye color, it also turns out that melanin is really important for the development of our visual system, especially the neurons that detect light and carry signals from your eyes to your brain. Albinism also can cause a variety of vision problems for the people who have it. She breaks it down. First, the physical eye characteristics of a patient with albinism. I know a lot of people assume that everyone with albinism has pink or maybe very light blue eyes. But there's also a lot of people with albinism who might look similar to someone else who doesn't have albinism. And there are also some types of albinism that don't really affect eye color. And so those people could have any color of eyes. Another physical characteristic of albinism is what's known as nystigmus, which means... The eyes are never really completely still or fixed on one spot. We don't think that prevents people with albinism from seeing as well. We think it's a side effect of some of the other changes in the visual system that aren't obvious. And it's important to know 
many features of albinism aren't physical, but instead are related to how the visual system works. When I say the visual system, I'm referring not just to the eyes, but also to the neural connections between the eyes and the brain, as well as some of the main areas of your brain that help you process visual information. She gives a couple of examples. In the back of the eye, the retina has a region called the fovea, specially designed to help you see very fine details. Now, in albinism, the fovea does not form the way we expect it to, and this causes people to have trouble seeing those fine details. Also, in albinism, some of the neurons that connect the eyes to the brain are most wired, and what this change in wiring means is that people with albinism often have reduced depth perception. As we learned earlier, there are two major types of albinism. First, oculocutaneous albinism, or OCA. A type of albinism that affects how much melanin your body is making. The color of skin and hair is going to be affected in addition to the eyes. And the other type, ocular albinism, or OA, different in that... It doesn't affect how much melanin your body is making, but it does affect what your body does with that melanin and how that melanin interacts with other systems in your body, particularly the way that visual system... So people with ocular albinism have just as much melanin as they might otherwise have. However, they're still going to have changes in their visual system related to what their body is doing with that melanin, how it sees it. Which type is more common? Oculocutaneous albinism tends to be much more common than ocular albinism. However, in general, we don't have quite as much data specific to ocular albinism. It's possible that we could find that in some parts of the world or in certain populations, maybe ocular albinism is more common than we realize. Also, each type of albinism has different subtypes. Inoculocutaneous albinism, oculocutaneous albinism type 1, is the most common subtype among white individuals. Oculocutaneous albinism type 2 appears to be more common among black individuals. Meanwhile, ocular albinism occurs almost exclusively in males, and this is because it's caused by a gene that's carried on the X chromosome, which is one of the chromosomes that determines their biological sex. So how does albinism affect a patient from an ophthalmological perspective? First, their sun sensitivity. We do know that people with albinism frequently experience photophobia, which just means that bright lights bother them a lot more than the average person. And they tend to be a lot more diligent about wearing sunglasses or hats with visors just to cut down on that light exposure. However, Dr. Wirtz says... The direct effect of sun exposure to the eyes for people with albinism is actually somewhat unclear at this point. Some people who have studied albinism think this might be because there's increased glare inside their eyes, but really the exact mechanism for this is still unclear. Are people with albinism susceptible to other eye issues, like cataracts or age-related macular degeneration? We don't really have a lot of data specific to the albinism community to know whether the prevalence of these conditions is different in albinism in the general population. So there's really a lot more to learn about sun exposure and what that means for people with albinism. What about quality of vision? How is visual function impacted by albinism? People with albinism tend to have reduced visual acuity. How much fine detail you can discriminate in your world. High acuity vision is what we use for activities such as reading or to see the individual leaves on a tree. So someone with normal visual acuity, we would say they have 20-20 vision. Now, most people with albinism have reduced visual acuity. So even if they are wearing glasses or contacts, their vision can be reduced to a wide extent. And again, because albinism affects how the eyes are connected to the brain or visual system. The wiring between their eyes and their brain is different. What that means is that a lot of people with albinism have really reduced depth perception. And this isn't something that makes a big difference, but it's just something that they're aware of. 
Also, children with the condition typically have their vision examined more frequently. That's just because we also know that their vision changes a lot during childhood. But once they reach adulthood, we think that albinism is a stationary disease, which means that it doesn't progress over time. And we'll just need to go to the eye doctor to get an annual eye exam, just like anybody else. Can albinism lead to blindness? Dr. Wirtz says... Because albinism does affect visual acuity and often can prevent people from having 20-20 vision, that deficit in vision can be severe enough to cause blindness. However, this is highly variable. And one of the things we're learning about albinism is that it's actually a wide spectrum. Which means that... Some people might have vision that is reduced enough that they would be considered to be legally blind. Whereas other people might have vision pretty close to normal and you might not notice any difference. And then, of course, you have a lot of people who are somewhere in between where they might need some assistive devices for things like reading or driving. Speaking of assistive devices, are people with albinism treated with traditional corrective eyewear? Glasses and contacts are certainly a good place to start. We do know that nearsightedness, farsightedness, and astigmatism do tend to be more frequent and often are more severe in people with albinism. So certainly getting those conditions corrected with a good pair of glasses or contact lenses is the right way to start. However, for some, these devices alone are not sufficient. And so a lot of times they can use assistive devices like magnifiers that can be mounted on their glasses or they can be handheld devices. And these are devices that have been increasing in accessibility and availability. So it's exciting to see that there's a lot more resources for people who might need those. Are we continuing to learn more about albinism through research? Absolutely. There is a lot of work right now worldwide to understand how albinism works, what is causing these visual deficits, and also what treatments might make a difference for people with albinism. There are studies at every stage of that process, all the way up to clinical trials. Including an ongoing albinism research study at the Medical College of Wisconsin's Eye Institute. We are really interested in understanding albinism better and trying to figure out some of those mechanisms behind vision. But if we don't really understand that mechanism for why they don't see well, then we're really ill-equipped to offer any solutions. While there's no cure for albinism, Dr. Wirtz is confident today's research will advance albinism diagnoses and treatments. What we are learning helps us to target our efforts towards treatment. What we're learning is maybe some of the ways that we have approached albinism treatment in the past, maybe were not the right way to approach it and that there was more to the story than what we thought. And so this gives us insight not only how to treat albinism, but also when to treat. So everything that we're learning right now is really priming us to more strategically approach treatment and improve vision overall. As far as stigmatization people with albinism can face, people who look different than their peers might not be accepted in the same way. People make assumptions about what they can or can't do based on their vision. This can affect what kind of jobs they can get or what social opportunities they might be offered. Just because you have a visual impairment, that doesn't necessarily mean there are certain things that you can or can't do. And each person is unique. Unique in our own way but needing to come together in understanding people with albinism. Put aside your assumptions and just be curious. If you meet someone with albinism, be curious about their experiences and ask them what helps them and how you can come alongside them in that experience. These are people that I think we can learn a lot from. Really, I think you'll be surprised. And for individuals or families impacted by albinism, I would 
encourage you to connect with an organization called the National Organization for Albinism and Hypopigmentation, or NOAA for short. This is a great patient advocacy organization and has a lot of great resources. You can connect with their website, albinism.org. Next, we meet a woman who discovered albinism has been in her family's genetic history for generations, undetected, until her own son was diagnosed with the condition. Her name is Carla, and she shares her family's story by first telling us about her son, Russell. Russell is eight years old, and he is a ball of energy. He loves math and computers. His favorite activities are jumping on a trampoline and swimming. Oh, boy. And wise beyond his years. I took him to meet some colleagues last week, and they just kept asking if he was really eight because he's smart and articulate and has a million questions. But before Russell was noticed for his inquisitive nature, he was noticed from the time he was born. Russell was born with a full head of white hair. He was the only blonde-haired kid in the nursery, and my mother said everybody kept talking about him. But babies in my family have been born with white hair at least since my grandfather. So I just thought, well, that's my kid, and didn't think much else of it. Still, within days of his birth, Carla asked Russell's pediatrician about having his vision checked due to family medical history. I said, when should we get his eyes checked? Because I had cross eyes as a little baby, and both my sisters had surgery for cross eyes. And I knew that developmentally that surgery needs to be done as early as possible to give the brain a chance to develop with the eyes. She was told it was best to wait until her son was three months old. He was 14 weeks old. We took him to the eye doctor. The eye doctor came in and took a glance at him and didn't say much. I kind of knew then that he had something in mind. The doctor gave a diagnosis Carla wasn't expecting to hear. The doctor turned and looked at us and said he was blind. I was like, what? But I don't understand. I know he can see. Don't know how well he can see, but I know he can see. So what does he mean blind? She didn't really get an answer to that question right then, and there were so many more questions to process. I just kept thinking, oh my God, is he going to read? Is he going to drive? Is he going to be able to live on his own? What does this all mean? It meant Russell had albinism. As a doctor herself, with some education in genetics, she then began making connections. When the doctor said he had albinism, I thought, wait a minute. This definitely runs in my family. When I was little and when my sisters were little, we were followed by eye doctors, and they had said, if your vision were worse, I would think you had albinism of the eyes. But none of us met criteria for a diagnosis of albinism of the eyes. Strange, but it got Carla thinking. Well, maybe we have an albino gene mutation that probably is the explanation for this. So I did suspect when they gave Russell that diagnosis that there was something odd in the family. Russell was genetically tested to confirm the diagnosis. Meanwhile, Carla did some sleuthing of her own. I, in the meantime, tracked down every branch in our family tree down to the level of the third cousins to try to figure out, did anybody else have this? She found no irregularities on her mother's side. However, my dad was the oldest of three, and he was born with white hair and blue eyes just like his dad. But then when his sisters were born, they had brown hair and brown eyes. And 
two blue-eyed parents can't have a brown-eyed child because brown is dominant. My mother didn't tell me this until after Russell was born, but when mom told me that story, I realized immediately that one of my grandparents had undiagnosed albinism. Carla discovered some cousins on that side of the family had inconsistencies with eye colors too, causing her to wonder. It was my kind of running theory that there was a second gene. You know, my dad, my sisters, and I were obviously not true, pure albinos like my son. When the results from her son's genetic testing came back, it created more questions than it provided answers. They tested only for the tyrosinase gene because it's the most common cause of albinism in the United States. And they identified one mutation. And that was the problem. Only one mutation was identified. And most of the time when you get two mutations in the same gene from different parents, they're different mutations. So the lab that did the test asked if they could test me and his dad. Their running theory was that there was a technical problem in the test and it failed to identify the second mutation rather than that we had the same one. But guess what? Turned out we had the same one. I thought, yeah, but that doesn't really explain how it seems to be traveling in my family. My sisters and I and my dad seem to have more traits of albinism than you would expect in simple carriers. It just deepened the mystery. The chances that both Russell's parents gave him the exact same mutation, so slim. Yet it appears to be the case. Soon after discovering this, Carla discovered the Medical College of Wisconsin's Eye Institute at a national conference on albinism. Dr. Erica Wirtz from the group came down to present their research. And when I looked at the images of the eyes that she was showing and what their questions were, I was intrigued. And so I sat next to her at lunch. That lunch conversation led to Carla connecting with Dr. Joseph Carroll, director of the Advanced Ocular Imaging Program at the Eye Institute, and an invitation to the Medical College of Wisconsin, where answers finally came about her family's genetic history. I went up with Russell. They took pictures of his eyes, and they took pictures of my eyes, and they did genetic testing on both of us. Dr. Carroll's team has a panel of mutations associated with albinism that they look for. And I have a second gene, as I had suspected. Whereas her son, Russell... Has three genes. The two copies that we know that he got from Dad and I, and then two more, not including the second one I have. Turns out that Dad and I, between us, have five mutations associated with albinism, and Russell has four of them. That explains why his vision is worse than you would normally expect it to be with this condition. The AOIP has since provided genetic testing for other members of her family as well. My sister has a different constellation of mutations than I do. I got one from my dad and one from my mom. She got two from our mom. My mom has yet another one. So we all have different combinations of genes, some of which are clear contributors to albinism, some of which scientists are still trying to figure out, is this of clinical significance at all? And have given Carla answers that had previously escaped her. We learned that there are quite a few genes associated with albinism in our family. So Dr. Carroll really had the answer not just to the mysteries that I saw for Russell, but going back to my grandparents. Answers she believes could only have come from MCW's Eye Institute. I think they're the 
only place that could have answered those questions. The combination of the genetic research they're doing and the advanced imaging, Dr. Carroll and Dr. Wirtz and the rest of their team are really doing innovative research that isn't just going to help people with albinism. They're in a position to understand how is the anatomy of the eye connected to the neuroanatomy of the brain and the way it processes vision to the actual vision that people have. That's amazing. It's research she hopes helps all of us understand that. It's a condition that can cause skin that's highly sensitive to sun damage and visual impairment, but otherwise folks with albinism are just like anyone else. And for her son, Russell. I just want him to know, and I think he already does, that he really can do anything he wants. He may need different strategies, but that's cool. Definitely cool. That's going to do it for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Thanks to all of our guests for appearing on today's show. Dr. Stephen Humphrey, Dr. Erica Wirtz, and special thanks to Carla for sharing her family's story. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. So make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.